We're wrapping up the series today, and uh, if you missed any parts, I hope you go back and check them out. They're all on our website, they're on our podcast, but it kind of builds, because uh, it's the life of David, the narrative of David's life, and just jumping in at the end is kind of like seeing Avengers Endgame, and you haven't seen all the rest of the ones going up, and you can kind of get the idea, but uh, yeah, go back, check it out, um, and uh, I think you'll be in good shape. And all the kids got that reference, none of y'all, the older folks, but that's okay. Um, I throw stuff in for everybody. Um, we're going to cover a lot of material today, uh, and and we're just going to kind of hit a few highlights or, or kind of lowlights of David's uh, latter years. And as we do that, we're going to be reminded of something that we all already know. It doesn't matter what your what age you are, unless you're like really tiny, and I don't think we even have anybody that young. But we've all experienced this, and that is just that life rarely goes as planned. Right? You kind of got plans for your life, and, and life doesn't kind of go as, as we anticipate. Anybody's life here, like they're looking today, and you're like, oh yeah, this is totally where I thought I would be at this stage of life, where I'm at, and nobody, nobody, I, even a teenager, I, like you, you kind of have plans, and, and plans are great, and everybody should have plans, and uh, you know, dream for the future, but as great as plans are, reality is greater, right? Reality kind of trumps our plans. And sometimes it's because of things that other people do, and sometimes it's because of the things that we do. But at the end of the day, what that means is that, you know, some of our dreams aren't going to come true. And what's worse, you know, like some of our dreams can't come true. Uh, you, may, you may never need to buy that high chair. Your second marriage begins to look a lot like your first marriage. And money's always going to be tight. And that prodigal son or daughter may never return. In retirement, it looks a lot different than, than what you thought it was going to look like and the way that you hoped and dreamed. And, and a lot of times as we kind of see our dreams uh, crumble, as things don't turn out the way that we thought and they're, they're kind of going in a different direction, we can, kind of get, we can kind of panic. We even get angry at God because you kind of feel like God promised you, right? You know, it's sort of like God maybe, maybe owes you because like, you played by the rules and, and you did, did everything right and, and you behaved and, and you waited and, and you did everything you knew to do right and, and yet, you know, you lived the right way. But now it looks like everybody else's dreams are coming true, you know, and, and yours aren't. Or sometimes it even looks like God granted somebody else your wish. And so today, as we wrap up this series in the life of David, we're going to ask the question, that David's life answers for us. And that is, what do we do when our dreams can't come true? Now, I'll do a quick recap because it's been a couple weeks. But back when David was in his 20s, he realized that some of his dreams weren't going to come true because of crazy King Saul. And we talked about that a while ago. God had made David some very specific promises, but, but King Saul decided that David needed to die. And so consequently, David had to flee from his home, found himself on the run in the wilderness. Everything's upside down. And he does what many of us do when we realize that our dreams can't come true. He panicked. He panicked, and when he panicked, he made a bad decision, and then he made another bad decision, and one bad decision after another after another, and people died. But during that season of his life, he learned a very important lesson. But now as king, he would undermine his own dreams coming true, and the lesson that he learns in this season of his life is a lesson for all of us. Now we're picking up about 22 years after David became king. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. David's no longer the cool kid, you know, that killed Goliath anymore. Now he's now he's 50s in his 50s. So, you know, in our world 50s is still pretty good age to be. But in ancient times 50s was old. Okay, you probably lost most of your teeth. You're not young. You're not handsome, and you smell bad. You know, that's 50s in the ancient times. And as we saw last time. 
when he should have been leading his men into battle, you know, he's wandering around the palace, ends up seeing Bathsheba bathing, and he's like, hey, come on up here. Yeah, you're married. Uh, don't worry about it. He has an affair with her. Um, she gets pregnant. He's like, okay, I can fix this. So he calls her husband Uriah home. Hey, Uriah, go hang out with your wife. And he doesn't. And he's like, okay. And he orders Uriah's execution. That's the whole last session, just compressed there. David decides, I can fix this. I've managed the outcome. You know, Uriah's dead. He takes Bathsheba in, marries her. Whew took care of the whole thing. But the prophet Nathan shows up and comes to David and tells him this fictitious story. And David gets really, really, really mad at the guy in the story. And Nathan's like, hey, by the way, David, you're the guy. Okay, You're the guy in the story. And David breaks. And he allows the law of God to break him. And he comes clean and he repents. But here's the problem. See, every sin comes prepackaged with a consequence. Every sin comes prepackaged with a penalty. And that day, as David began to own his sin and mourn his sin, Nathan said this to to David. He said, this is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Like, you did this in secret, but I I will do this thing. It's God talking. I will do this thing, this calamity that I'm going to bring about in broad daylight before all of Israel. Because you're the leader. You're the king. And you're accountable to the entire kingdom. And I am going to bring about a consequence that everybody in the kingdom knows about. And David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I've sinned against the Lord. And remember, like even though David was king, and even though he was flawed, he never confused himself with the king of Israel. Never abandoned God's law. He broke it, but then he would allow God's law to break him. Now we find himself acknowledging his fault and surrendering to the will of God. He says, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But there is going to be an unavoidable consequence for what you did. You committed adultery. You had an innocent man murdered. You tried to hide it. tried to lie to the entire nation. Well, a year goes by and nothing happens. And two years go by. Nothing happens. Five years go by, nothing happens. Finally, finally, ten years later, this consequence begins to take hold and it turns David's world upside down. And at the end of the story, his dreams can't come true. Now, David's oldest son was a guy named Amnon. Amnon. Amnon, uh, because he was the oldest son, he was next in line to become king after David. So Amnon, uh, firstborn, next in line, But he's got a problem. He's consumed with lust for his half-sister, Tamar. Okay, So Tamar and Amnon share one parent, David, but have different mothers. So Amnon, he just can't get Tamar out of his mind. So he... He comes up with this scheme. He pretends to be sick. And he asks David, hey, you know, could you send Tamar to, to make me some food so I'd feel better? You know? and, and, and David's like, sure. And she comes to his house. And then he tries to force her into bed with him. And she resists. And she says, she says no, my brother. No, uh, don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. But the text says he refused to listen to her. And since he was stronger than she, he raped her. Then, get this, just the very next verse. It's gut-wrenching. The text says, Then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. Amnon said to her, Get up and get out. And she's devastated because her life is ruined. 
Okay, uh, forever. In this culture, she's never going to marry. And, and because there's no secrets in the palace, you know, even everybody knows. And, and no secrets to the degree that David finds out. And when King David finds out that his oldest son, what, what he did to one of his daughters, he is furious. But you know what he does? Nothing. Doesn't do anything. And we can only guess why David didn't do anything. You know, maybe he thought, oh, you know, I, who am I to judge? You know, I've been. But throughout this season of his life as a parent, he just does nothing. And then we're introduced to another one of David's sons. His name is Absalom. Now, Absalom is a uh, third son. We think the, the second son probably had died by this time. And we find out later that Absalom is David's favorite son. And so Absalom is next in line to become king if Amnon does not become king. Well, Absalom is Tamar's full brother, same, same two parents. And uh, Absalom uh, takes Tamar into his home because she's, she's destitute. But he too does nothing, never even speaks to Amnon. He just acts as if he doesn't even exist. And a year goes by. And two years go by. Nothing happens. But Absalom, he is so shrewd. When he thinks everybody's forgotten what happens, he decides to throw a big feast for, at his home. And he invites the entire family, including David. And David's like, no, no, I can't come. You know, if I come, it's just going to be a burden to your, to your house. But Absalom's like, hey, what if I invite my brothers? And David's like, hey, knock yourself out, you know, have a good time. So Absalom has his big feast, gets everybody good and drunk. And when all the brothers and families and everybody's gathered to, together around the table and Amnon is really, really drunk, Absalom sends his men into the dining hall and they slaughter Amnon in front of all of his brothers. All the brothers freak out. You know, they flee to Jerusalem because they, they're afraid they're going to be next. Absalom gets up, he flees north to what we would call Syria, and when David finds out that his oldest son has been murdered by his favorite son, King David does nothing. And life just goes on for three long years. David's missing Absalom. And, and so David invites Absalom back to Jerusalem, back to the capital. But when Absalom gets there, he's told, hey, you're invited to move back into your home, but the king refuses to see you. And for two more years, next two years, Absalom tries to get in to see King David, but King David ignores him. And Absalom's furious. He's like, hey, you brought me back here, and it's like I'm under house arrest. And finally, he just gets fed up. So he sends some servants to Joab's farm. And Joab is, is the commander-in-chief of the army. He's, he's like the chief of staff for David, the go-between. So if you want to get a message to David, you know, Joab would be the guy. But Joab won't have anything to do with Absalom either. So Absalom sends his servants to Joab's farm, and he burns down the entire farm. And Joab comes over to Absalom's home and is like, hey, what is going on? What are you up to? And Absalom says, hey, well, it's finally nice to see you, Joab. You know, I've been trying to get a hold of you for the last two years, and you've ignored me. And now that I have your undivided attention because I burned down your farm, like, I, I want you to get a message into my father. Would you please tell my father that I want to see him? And Joab agrees, and he's like, okay, I'll work it out. But Joab's smart. He knows he can't approach David directly. So he sends a woman who makes up this incredible story, gets David all engaged emotionally in the story. And basically at the end of the story, the person that David's most frustrated with in the story, this woman's like, hey, well, king, that's you. You know, uh, you're upset with yourself. And he's like, oh, 
got me again. Same, you know, same kind of thing. And he's like, okay, did Joab send you? And she's like, yeah, Joab sent me. So he calls for Joab. Joab comes into the king and he's like, hey, your highness, please see your son Absalom. He's waited for two years. Well, Absalom comes before the king and the king bows down, uh, or he bows down. King lays his hands on Absalom and, and he kisses him. And it's kind of a way of saying like, hey, everything's forgiven and the relationship is restored, but it's not. And Absalom is hurt. And best we can tell, David never calls for his son again. Well, Absalom is so angry and he is so hurt that he decides to overthrow his father and take the kingdom and the throne for himself. Maybe he thought, hey, at this point it's mine anyway. Eventually, you know, I'm just going to go ahead and take it now. And so what he does, so shrewd, every morning Absalom would get up early and he would set up court uh, by the by the gates to the city. So people would come to bring a case to the king for judgment, and Absalom's like, hey, you know what? You're going to have to wait a long time. Let me just judge your case for you. Let me help you. And he sets himself up as judge. He sits there every day, day after day, seeing all these court cases where people would otherwise have to wait a long time, maybe months, to see the king. So he's outside the city gates, uh, and people are like, hey, this guy's really smart. And apparently he's really good looking. And And they realize how wise he is and what a great leader he is. And the Bible tells us that over time, Absalom stole the hearts of the people. And then, four years later, he sets into motion his plot to overthrow his father. So, 16 years after David's incident with Bathsheba, David's world is now upside down. His firstborn has been murdered by his favorite son, who has now instigated a civil war and is about to divide the entire nation. We read that a messenger came and told David, the hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. And when David heard this, apparently he wasn't completely surprised. You know, he'd probably heard rumors uh, the last couple years. And the text says, David said to all of his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, come, we must flee or none of us will escape Absalom. We must leave immediately or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword. Because David knew, like, hey, you know, if Absalom comes and he ends up taking the city, he's going to think that everybody in the city was on David's side and he's going to put everybody to death and destroy the city. So David abandons the throne to save the city. But once again, he's a fugitive. And he finds himself, again, running from the place that he considered his home and running from the people who supposedly loved him. But this time, uh, as he's a fugitive, this time he's not 22. This time he's 61 years old. This wasn't the dream. This this is not the way that things were supposed to to work out. Not the way this season of his life was supposed to look. Not what he expected. His dreams were not coming true, and as it turns out, they could not come true. And there we are. And this is where our lives, at some point, now or in the past or, or in the future, they intersect with the story of David. Because here we are, we're heartbroken, disappointed, maybe angry, maybe looking for somebody to blame. Life hasn't worked out the way that you thought, or you're walking through a deep valley because of circumstances that you're facing. And if you're not a Christian, that's really frustrating because you're not sure who to blame. You know, it's like you're not sure there is a God, and if there was, you know, you'd like to give him a piece of your mind. And if you are a Christian, perhaps you've decided to blame God because after all, where's God? Like, he could have kept this from happening. So, so what's the point of even going on? You know, like, why even try? Like, you hung in there with them year after year after year, and now look at what they've done. Or, or you waited and you waited and you waited. And you waited for what? Or you raised him right. 
You raised her right. You don't deserve to be treated this way. And look at the way he's treating you. Look at the way she's treating you. And if you're honest, like you were told, if you were honest, good things are going to happen to you, but you were honest and you lost that job, or you worked hard, but things didn't really work out. And this, this is when we often make things worse for ourselves, isn't it? Because we're so angry and we're so hurt and we're so frustrated with God and disappointed with God. And then we end up like hurting ourselves. It's this weird dynamic. It's like when you're a kid and your parents do something, you know, and it's like, well, yeah, I'll show you. And you just kind of like do self-destructive things to get back at your parents. It's like, what is that about? But we kind of do that with God, that same, same sort of thing. We hurt ourselves, which creates more regret. We create more debt. There's more pain relievers, and yet there's more pain. And this isn't, but this isn't the first time David has faced this kind of situation. And you remember the first time David fled the kingdom, he took matters into his own hands, but he learned something along the way. And this is the lesson from the life of David today. And this is, this is the lesson from this season of the life of David that we all need to take to heart. Because here's what happened. The whole caravan, like all of them, all of David's supporters, everybody who's a supporter, they're filing out of the city, trying to get out of Jerusalem before Absalom and his followers get there. And the whole countryside wept aloud as all the people passed by. The king also crossed the Kidron Valley, which is right at the edge of Jerusalem. And all the people moved on toward the wilderness. And David's like, I don't even know where we're going at this point. We just got to get out of the city. And Zadok, who was the high priest, was there too. And all the Levites who were with him. And this is the tribe that takes care of all the sacrificial system. And they're carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God. And this is really, really important. And when you read through the Bible fast, like you can miss the significance of this. But the Ark of the Covenant uh, represented the presence of God for ancient Israel. As far as ancient Israel was concerned, you cannot get closer to God you know, then the, you're in the presence of the Ark of the Covenant. And for some people, it was almost considered like a, a good luck charm. You know, like, like if you took the Ark of the Covenant with you into battle, like you were sure to win. That's why Adolf Hitler wanted it in Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? So, but yeah, they, some Philistines captured it once and they started winning. And there's just well, weird stuff has happened with the Ark. It represented the presence of God. So when the people of the city saw them taking the Ark, it looked as if the presence of God Uh, was leaving the city and going with David. And the implications of this were kind of overwhelming for David. In fact, David thought, seems a little manipulative, trying to manipulate the situation. So here's what he said. He said, the king said to Zadok, take the ark of God back into the city. And I guarantee you, those people that were standing around when David made this decision, gave this order, like they all groaned. They're like, oh, what? You know, like, like, because one of the things that gave them courage and confidence as they're following the king, was that, hey, they're following the presence of God. The presence of God's going with them and the king. And for David to command them to take the presence of God, the blessing of God, you know, the Ark of the Covenant, back into the city, it's almost like David saying, hey, you know what? Absalom's in the right and we are in the wrong. But listen to David's explanation as to why he told Zadok to take the Ark of the Covenant back. So powerful. He says, if I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it and his dwelling place again. If God chooses to bring me back, then God chooses to bring me back. But I am not taking matters into my own hands. He says, but if God says, I am not pleased with you, then I am ready. And here's the punctuation. 
Let him, talking about God, do to me whatever seems good to him. Not my will, but thy will be done. Every time I do my will, I mess things up. Every time I try to have my way, I get in the way. Not my will, thy will. And this is the lesson. This is so powerful. See, David lost his world, but he did not lose his confidence in God. David's entire world is upside down, but he does not lose his faith in God. Doesn't, doesn't reject the law, doesn't consider himself to be above the law. He understands that he is a flawed, flawed man. He's not perfect. But he refuses to be the king. David never loses a sight of the fact that he is simply a king. He lost his world. He did not lose his confidence in his faith in God. He chose not to abandon God when it appeared God chose to abandon him. I'm not going to go to war with my son. I'm not going to risk the city. This is not about me. God put me in place and God will choose how and when and where I am replaced. And he leaves the city and he leaves the ark. And Absalom shows up at the city and he takes the city without a fight, but it's a hollow victory because he's got the capital, but he doesn't have the king. There's a very interesting series of events we don't have time to go into. Read it for yourself, please. It's really interesting. Um, but Absalom ends up pursuing David, and David and his entourage end up in a city called Mahanaim. And he hears that Absalom is coming, and he realizes at this point he has no choice but to defend himself and to, to defend the people that are with him. So David does this real smart thing. He divides his army up into thirds and puts a different commander in charge of each of the thirds. And he gives them these very, very explicit instructions. And he gives his commanders these instructions so that all the troops can hear. He says, when you catch up to Absalom and you catch up to Absalom's army, be gentle with the young man for my sake. Be gentle with the young man Absalom. I mean, I, I, I got, I know it's war and I know things are going to be chaotic, but if there's any way you can spare my son's life, I want you to spare his life. And all the troops heard the king giving orders concerning Absalom to each of the commanders. So everybody knew like, hey, Find Absalom, you take Absalom alive and you bring him back to David. Well, David's generals insist David not join them in the battle, so he stays on the wall of the city and he watches the soldiers as they march out to confront his son in battle. Now, the text tells us the battle didn't take place on an open plain, which is where most of them did, but actually the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim, which meant that superior numbers meant very little experience and organization and, and communication mattered more. And fortunately, David's men were better organized to fight under these conditions because he had three commanders, whereas Absalom's troops are all kind of looking just to him for a leadership. And the text says, there Israel's troops were routed by David's men. And the casualties that day were great, 20,000 men. The battle spread out over the whole countryside and the forest swallowed up more men that day than the sword. Well, eventually Absalom is caught. Instead of being you know, taken prisoner and brought back to David, Joab butchers David's son, even as the army watches. And once like Absalom's army, the people knew that Absalom was dead, his army stops fighting. They throw down their weapons and his text says they just all went home. And David is told that Absalom is dead and he mourns the loss of his son. In fact, he mourns him to such an extent that like, his troops are afraid to celebrate because they're like, you know, they're, they don't want to celebrate the victory. 
And David returns to Jerusalem as king, but his world would never be the same. And nine years later, he dies at the age of 70. Now, really speaks to the authenticity of this account that, you know, like the, the writers seem to have done nothing to hide from us all of David's faults and flaws and, and, and failures. And the thing that's so amazing, and the thing that I want us to take away as we wrap up this narrative of David, is that with all of his flaws, David never lost his confidence in God. When things uh, did not go his way and it was somebody else's fault, when things didn't go his way and it was his own fault, with all of that, he never lost his confidence in God. And David's somewhat sad ending reminds us of something extraordinarily important. And, and this is the takeaway, and it, it's simply this, that the foundation of our faith is not answered prayer. Okay, The foundation of our faith is not everything going our way. The foundation of our faith is not happily ever after endings. In fact, it's always a mistake even though we all tend to do this, but it's always a mistake to wrap our faith in God around the fulfillment of our dreams or even the answers to our prayers. Oh, my dreams came true. God is good. Oh, my dreams didn't come true. I don't think there is a God. It's always a mistake to wrap our faith and wrap our confidence in God around our dreams coming true or, or even answers to prayer because dreams that don't come true and prayers that don't get answered say nothing about the presence or the goodness or the faithfulness of God. And David, I think of all people in the Old Testament, would be the quickest to remind us that when we feel forsaken, we're mistaken. When circumstances don't go our way and when our dreams can't come true, we're mistaken to assume from circumstances that God's not real or, or God's not present. And David says, don't, don't make that mistake. Because through all of the highs and lows and all the ups and downs, he would say, God was with me. And we would do well with our own circumstances and, and our own broken hearts and our own anger, our own dreams that, that can't or won't come true, to join David in this extraordinary, extraordinary statement he makes while he's leaving the city. All hope's gone. David doesn't know if he's ever going to return, ever going to see the city again if he'll ever be restored. He doesn't know what's going to happen in this season of life. But for us to join him as he makes this incredible statement, if, if, I don't know the future, but if I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back. He will bring me back. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. In other words, not my will, but thy will. I know how I want things to turn out. I know how I, I want things to go. I know how I've prayed that they go. I, I know I thought for sure they would go this way, but not my will, but thy will. I may lose my world, but I will not lose my confidence or my faith in God. I will choose not to abandon him, even when it appears and feels like God has abandoned me. And that takes us all the way back to the first part of our series where J David journaled this incredible declaration that, that maybe got David through life over and over again. He wrote these powerful words. In you, Lord, I put my trust. My hope is in you all day long. Now, I'll tell you what's amazing. Okay, like, like You are seated around people that look like they've all got it got it all together. You know, it's like everybody's looking pretty good. But if they were to come up here and tell their story, this is their story. Story of heartbreak, 
disappointment, broken promises, dreams that can't come true. And yet, you are surrounded by men and women who have an extraordinary faith and confidence in God because they haven't made the mistake of measuring their faith in God by their expectation of God, how God will or, or should behave. That's why, in spite of what happens around us, we can say with confidence, not my will, but thy will be done. Let me, let me tell you God's promise for you. I, mean, I just want you, just for a moment, just close your eyes. And worship team's going to come up and, and we're going to close in song in just a moment. But I want you to close your eyes. And I want you to envision God saying what I'm about to say to you. Because he made a covenant promise with you just like he did with David. And right now, the circumstances in your life may in no way be able to match what he's promised you, but he has made this unconditional promise. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate you from my love for you. The love demonstrated at Calvary. Heavenly Father, for some of us, we say amen. Because you've taken us around enough times, we, we finally just opened up our hands and said, God, have your way in my life. Thy will be done. But for others of us, Father, it's, it's like our fists are still clenched tightly around our plans and our dreams and our hopes, our money, our relationships, our picture of what the future should be like. Would you please just give us grace to open those clenched fists and to say to you, do to me whatever seems good to you. I trust you. I trust you. God, you know our hearts. You know each of our situations. Would you please give us courage to entrust our future to you? And then to sit back and watch you unfold your incredibly loving, gracious plan for our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.